Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Psychology 360 podcast. Today, I have with me Dr. Shane Kraus from the University of Nevada in Las Vegas, and we are going to be expanding upon the research on porn, porn addiction, and the brain that we touched upon last time uh, with the Reward Foundation. So, uh, Shane, uh, could you... Tell the listeners who you are and what your specialty is. Sure. So, uh, so my name is uh, Shane Krause, and uh, I'm I'm an assistant professor of psychology at, at University of Nevada, Las Vegas, in the clinical PhD program. So, I specialize in training addiction, so substance use disorders, but I also do research in gambling disorder, and then what we what I what we more recently call compulsive sexual behavior disorder, which is more of a new term, which often uh, captures or classifies what we call problematic or compulsive pornography use. So, so it's so I study a lot of sexual behavior and look so uh so that's what i do and that's the research that i'm doing here in nevada and we do a lot of uh, collaborations with international partners in europe and throughout the world on these issues since they are evolving and very much being discussed right now so Mm -hmm. so and um Mm -hmm. getting specifically into the issue of porn use and uh porn addiction and what was called i know there was also some talk about what is called like hypersexual disorder, yeah. hypersexuality, and mm-hmm. how do these things tie in? Mm-hmm. Or what got you into this, first of all? What, what, yeah, what okay, so, you know, so I'll, I'll start with that, and then I'll kind, of, I'll kind of give us the cliff notes of kind of where things are in the field. So, so right. I, a while back, I, I, some years ago, I was taking, I was uh, doing a post-bac, so I finished my, my bachelor's in criminology, and I was taking some psychology courses, and I took a human sexuality course that I really liked with a professor named uh, Sally Hunt, who is now retired. Um, and we did this. We did this project. It was the first time I had done a sexually sexual health study, and it went great. And it really got me thinking around sexuality. And then I finished school. I went and had a job for a couple of years, and then slowly, as I went back to graduate school, I continued to study other things other than sexual behavior. But I kept finding myself doing more and more research on, you know, this this topic. And then for my dissertation, um, we we published, I think, the, the first scale on craving for pornography. And I did some research around craving for pornography uh, early many years ago, and that were kind of opened the door for a lot of the work that I do today. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So so the fields changed a lot. So 30 years ago, you know, the, people have been studying sex problematic sexual behavior out of control, whatever you want to call it, for many years, decades, actually. And 20, 30 years ago, the term sexual addiction came through by Dr. Patrick Carnes. He did some great work. And then over time, when DSM-5 came came out, which is um, a manual that we use for for diagnosing mental psychiatric disorders, there was a term hypersexual disorder, which was proposed. Um, It was not included. Um, And fast forward, so that was 2013, um, fast forward last year, ICD-11 world, um, included compulsive sexual behavior disorder in that, which is now included, which will be official as of 2022. So <clears throat> what that means to say is that these terms are evolving, um, but the experience is still being described in research. So, so people have used sexual addiction, people still use that term. Um, but in my writing, we look at, we're kind of using what we call compulsive sexual behavior, which is a broader um, term. 
you know, for sexual behavior. So if that makes sense. And I can describe that. So do you have any questions first? I don't want to talk too much and tell you. No, no, it's fine. You're, this is, yeah. uh, the, you're, you're the guest and yeah. I want to hear as much okay. as possible. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And there's been a lot of discussion in, you know, and, and it's a reasonably good discussion. There's a lot of passionate people in the field. And I think that's wonderful who say it's an addiction. It's not an addiction. It's a problem. No, it's not a problem. And what we've done recently um, with ICD-11 is we said, look, here is some simple framework we think that describes what we call compulsive sexual behavior, right? So loss of control, difficulty, cutting back, um, the behavior, in this case, sex has become a central part of your life. And we propose that as what's called an impulse control disorder. And that's just a, a, a diagnostic framework. It's the same thing that was happened for gambling disorder many years ago. It started as an impulse control disorder. And then so much great research came out and, you know, for 15, 20 years that really showed that it was an addiction, which is why it was reclassified in 2013 as an addictive disorder. So when you, when you look at sexual behavior, there's a lot of discussion. Porn is addictive. And I always say, well, let's slow down. What we know is that pornography for some people is really problematic, right? Clinically, we see them in patients. But to, to argue that it's an addiction or not addiction, we have to slow down and say, well, let's, what's a framework that we can test, we can start with and look at clinical populations. And that's what we're doing now. So the, the framework that we recently published and work on kind of gives researchers um, an area to start with. You know, um, In 10 years or five years from now, will pornography, could it be reclassified more as an addictive disorder? Absolutely, or it might stay as an impulse control disorder. We need a lot of really good research. We need, we need more fMRI research. We need more longitudinal research. We need a lot of clinical research. We need more women in research and studies. We have very few women in studies. We have very, we don't have enough ethnic and sexual diversity in samples. So you have to do, you have to do all those things first before you say, absolutely, this is where we're at. Does that make sense? So that's kind of where the field is kind of at, I think, so. Yeah, so it, it's, it makes uh, some sense, I mean, I'm not an expert in this and I'm interviewing various uh, people and basically in this show I like to invite people who have differing perspectives and yeah I mean it in terms when, when we mention addiction and impulse control I guess that that can also be tricky when we look at substance abuse right because in my view it's it's uh, like with the DSM-5 now, I, I guess it's seen more as a spectrum, right? You just have substance like cocaine use disorder. And I think it's, it's more nuanced than that, right? You may have someone who is not an addict and uses cocaine once in a while or uh, is integrating. And, and I, I get that it's also like an extremely stigma, stigmatized subject like mm -hmm. similarly to sexuality. So right. in terms of sexuality, one thing that I would like to learn more about in, in terms of your research and mm -hmm. what we know about the brain is how does, uh, let's say, sexual addiction in terms of actually meeting people and becoming, you know, and having uh, sexual relationships, whether they are, you know, polyamorous or, or whatever, uh, compared to somebody who is a compulsive uh, porn consumer online where there's no uh, interaction, it's just uh, kind of a masturbation or things like that. How does that compare? Is there a difference? Well, so I think that's a big question that we've actually talked about. And I would say that 
there, there isn't enough data to really come to study that yet. I would say that I treated both types of individuals, right? So people who are only using really what we would call excessive amounts of pornography, a lot of, you know, masturbating three, four times a day or more, you know, hours and hours of pornography versus someone who, in, let's say in Las Vegas, is engaging in a lot of high-risk sexual paid sex, you know, behaviors, right? So um, I think it, the context matters. I would say that we still don't have great data on that. I would say that's kind of where we need to figure these things out, right? Um, it goes back, one of the things we kind of know though is frequency by itself. So you could have a lot of sexual partners and still not have any issues, right? Because maybe you're engaging in safer sex practices. It's not, it's not putting you at risk for HIV or other, you know. So part of it is we have to understand what are the things that best describe problematic, what we call compulsive sexual behavior. In, in terms of partnered sexual behavior, like what you're talking about, versus solo or only, you know, individual, which is generally more for pornography. But to be fair, some people do both. So they are using pornography in addition to also engaging in risky uh, sexual behaviors as well. So this is where the field is evolving. And I think um, this is what's so exciting about it. But I think we, we don't have enough data to really say what we know. I mean, it, it takes a lot of funding and resources. And much of what we know is based on, you know, European or white male men generally of middle income and i would say that's not the sample that i would really want to say speaks for women or people of color or lgbtq identified individuals so i think what we want to do is slow down which is what we're doing and just say what is let's take a systematic approach to figuring out how to best help people with these issues right when we in in addition to looking at cultural uh differences across countries you know religion all these things yeah so. Yeah, that's interesting. I think it would mm -hmm. be, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm just throwing an idea. It would be interesting to also look at cross-cultural mm -hmm. studies in terms of, because I know um, a colleague of mine was, she, she, does, uh, uh, she does presentations on pornography and especially as a prevention for porn addiction in uh, high school, middle schools. And she was uh, showing me some of the data about porn use in different countries so you have like pakistan india and various preferences so it would be interesting to also see like in terms of culture and of course like different ethnic groups subcultures the uh, lgbt community etc and so you you're saying there's not so much data on these uh i don't i don't i think i i would say that I think what people like good research, you know, and some of it I'm involved with, I think we're, we're really looking at, you know, creating new scales and, and cross-validating them, you know, in different languages with different samples. And so I think this is where the field's headed in a really exciting way. So, um, but that's why when people say, well, this, we know, we I believe that this is true. And I say, well, let's revisit that in the next five years and we'll actually have a better understanding of how we treat it, how we classify diagnostic, is it an addiction versus something else? Um, and for whom and for and how do we best know it is right so so those are the kind of questions i would say but everything you're saying i would agree with i think that's where the, the research is, is is happening it's really exciting um and now it's more it's more focused and the quality of research is much stronger i would say that we're having more longitudinal studies we're having much more rigorous clinical samples um you, convenient samples if i just go out in the community and ask people questions that's fine but that doesn't necessarily mean that it maps onto to most people, right? So you have to think about who you ask and their experiences and whether that generalizes to a lot of other people. And the, often the answer is no. 
Now, though, more recent last couple of years, that work is starting to really look good as people are recruiting national representative samples from different countries. That work, I think, will help us better understand sexual behavior within across diverse cultural settings, if that makes sense. So, but we don't have enough data out of middle, you know, Middle East. Um, I think there's some evolving research. We're doing some work in Asia as well, and these issues are emerging. But how they're experience how people disclose problems what they endorse as symptoms right it's like from a psychiatric perspective vary so part of that is part of this cultural understanding that we're working on so for sexual yeah. behavior yeah definitely and i can imagine in various cultures that are uh let's say more conservative it could be mm -hmm. even more taboo to, to disclose exactly yeah exactly yeah and there's been some really great work here in the u.s uh a professor named dr uh, joshua grubb so i worked with as well on some some work he's done some work what we call moral incongruence so this is this idea that the pornography use sexual behavior isn't it, it's causing issues with your personal beliefs or often your religious beliefs so people yeah. um that group sometimes is more likely to over say they have a pornography you know addiction or self-label mm -hmm. At the same time, you can also be very religious and have compulsive sexual behavior disorder. You can have both, they're not mutually exclusive. So what you wanna know is someone says, if someone says, I identify, I have porn addiction, I say, well, why is that? Tell me why. And what I'm listening for are things like, I've tried to quit many, mm -hmm. many relationships, my romantic, my social, my occupational. I'm thinking about it all the time. I tried to quit. 15 times a past month. That's what I'm listening for from a diagnostic perspective. Not that it makes me feel bad around, around about my religion. In therapy or treatment, you can help the person live their life in accordance of their faith, right? Or work out those issues, but you're not gonna diagnose them with compulsive sexual behavior disorder because they say they think they have a porn addiction, right? Right. So you have to look at, does that make sense? So part of what we're trying to do is say, they're asking about someone's faith and their culture matters and you're also looking to say well what are they doing if someone says well i've never tried to quit pornography i'll say well go try and then come back and see me in two weeks and half the time they say hey it went pretty well and i say well i don't think you're you're addicted to pornography but maybe you need to make some changes in your life right mm -hmm. right make sense yeah, yeah absolutely that, that yeah. does make sense i mean this yeah. issue with subjectivity mm -hmm. and somebody mm -hmm. may be uh yeah it may be a cultural taboo and uh yeah they may feel like and but you know i i see this also in terms of uh i, I like to see the positive in this and for me mm -hmm. the fact that even somebody that is um very religious and comes mm -hmm. to therapy uh mm -hmm. to admit that maybe you know this person has a porn addiction that's that's a positive i i think that, oh it's a one absolutely yeah, yeah. i think yeah, that absolutely. in many communities like the, that uh therapy is still stigmatized Absolutely. And I think in Absolutely. the US it's it's becoming less and less and that's like a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean I guess we have a lot of stigma around sexual behavior and sexual identity. I mean, I think the US, you know, we make gains, but I don't I don't think we're where we need to be. And you're right. I think if someone seeks help, that's amazing. And 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 it's okay that they, you know, it's good that they're seeking help because the goal is we want every client that we treat to live the life that's best for them and right. to define what makes them healthy and happy is very different from me or from you. And yeah. we want them live that way, you know, and whatever that is. And that's, if that means living a specific way of their faith, that's fine. Um, sometimes the faith and their behaviors don't align and they have to work that out, you know, yeah. and that, you know, that's a whole different process. Right. Um, but 
to make sure we label them with a disorder and say, hey, you have this problem, right? So part of the work that I do and, and the writing that I, I work on is really trying to get the community and the national community to think about, let's pause the brakes and say, how do we best diagnose? But I do believe there are lots of people who have what we all call compulsive sexual behavior and pornography use is one of those behaviors that we see. So, you know, it does exist, you know, so. Yeah, that makes sense. And so, and you said you're currently working on certain scales mm -hmm. and uh, you yes. also, I, I think you, you mentioned you also um, did work or collaborated with researchers that do mm -hmm. uh, MRI or fMRI. So we have, so, so I'm definitely not a, I'm not a neuroscientist. So that's, I'm, I'm more, I'm a clinical psychologist. So I do more treatment interventions. I'm definitely more the clinical focus of the therapy intervention approach person. Um, so there is some work, yeah, some of my colleagues from Yale. So when I was doing my postdoc at Yale and some of the, my colleagues from Poland and other places are doing fMRI research. Um, and some of that's coming out. I think um, there's some, some of the collaborations that, in fact, there's a big paper that we're working on right now. Um, they're looking at fMRI you know, differences and, and men who have, who have compulsive sexual behavior versus those who don't and looking at their responses to treatment and, and differences. Um, I, I would say that the fMRI research is, is interesting and suggests there are some differences, but I would say the samples rates now are so small and the lack of women and the lack of ethnic sexual minorities in that those samples are, are not there. So it's one of those things that we really need to do, I would say, many, many fMRI studies in the next five, you know, five years to really substantial say, yes, there are differences in how someone with CSP uh, responds to Q-reactivity or their brain is lighting up a little different, you know, than other people, right, without the issue. So there is evidence, you know, for that. But again, I would say that it's, it's um, preliminary. I would not, I would want to see much more rigorous research coming out, you know, with much larger samples. So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and that makes sense. And I, I guess it, uh, it's also a factor that it costs a lot, and you need uh, grants. Yeah. Have to hold yeah. It's very expensive. Yeah. I mean, to do one person could be a thousand dollars, right? So to image, right? So and if you want to image them pre and post the study and intervention, um, it's very expensive. But this is what has been done for cocaine, substance use, alcohol mm -hmm. use, cannabis. So. I think it's what needs to be done, but I would say what the, the results coming out so far suggest that there are some differences. And I, that makes a lot of sense to me. If someone develops a pathway, so if, if you use problematic pornography quite a bit over and over and over, your brain's going to form a, a pathway for that, that because it's going to produce dopamine, right? As a response, it's, you're going to masturbate, which also is going to have uh, inducing uh, neurochemical responses. So it's not surprising that there is a pathway that's formed. And that pathway does seem similar to other things such as cocaine or alcohol, you know, other substances. And we still don't have a great, we don't have a great diversity on that. We know we restrict that generally to white males so far. They've almost all been heterosexual. So we don't really have great, I think, great data yet. I wouldn't dismiss the data. I think the data coming out is quite good. But I would say I'd like to see another 50 publications with samples to really say substantially, yes, this is the pathway that we're seeing, you know, consistent across international samples in the US and in Japan and China and Poland and Hungary, you know, you want to see consistent behavior, right? So. Right. And that makes sense. And well, I guess this question I have next is more like a sociological one, but uh, you, you said that 
there's good there's pretty good data when, when you look at things like cocaine or marijuana but yeah uh, with this it's it's much more restricted it's not mm -hmm. not so much but mm -hmm. would you say that this is because it's not taken as seriously or it's less of an issue in terms of the, let's say the government that often funds yeah. like NIDA, like in the US mm -hmm. the Institute. Yeah, I, I think it's both. So we actually just, we just wrote something, uh, we're writing something about this right now. So I think there's a couple things. One is that, so sexual behavior, um, sex and food, for example, or eating are drives, right? The drives. And they're both very, in the US, they're very morally judged, right? So if someone, unfortunately in the US is overweight and people see them, they're more likely to stigmatize them and think poorly of them. Oh, look at that person who's overweight. Well, sex is the same way if we said, um, or gambling, if we said, oh, this person lost a lot of money from gambling, they would say 80% of Americans say, oh, they're morally weak, they're bad, you know, they're not a good person. Same thing for sexual behavior, oh, what's wrong with them, you know. But if I said, oh, they have an alcohol problem, they say, oh, well, that's a brain disease, you know, we should try to help them. So we have a lot of work to do in the U.S. Um, around sexual behavior, behavioral problems, gambling, sex, eating, I think, um, around changing society's understanding of why they are important to be treated. At the same time, funding mechanisms, right, so the ones that you mentioned, federal um, and even foundations have not funded this this topic yet because I think it's very new, it's very evolving, um, and no one's funded it yet. I think whoever chooses to really substantially fund this will help us answer a lot of questions. I would say that for many years, much of the research that came out was case studies or wasn't very rigorous, but I would say the last three or four years, there's some really good scholarship coming out now that says, hey, I think we have some issues here, which I think sets up funding opportunities for, I hope for the US or for Europe or other you know, foundations to say, here's, here's the financial resources to fund a very large study and to let researchers work independently and come up with their own conclusions. You know? So um, that's what happened for alcohol. You know, alcohol is a, what, a hundred billion dollar industry and there's you know, millions if not a billion dollars in treatment. You know? it's, just, um, it's just, well, it's more well-funded. Gambling is in the US is you know, billions, you know, $100 billion as well, right? And yet there's, I don't know, $70 million for treatment for, for gambling disorder. So some of the behavioral issues, gambling, sexual behaviors, no funding or limited funding. And I think that's why the research, you can, you can, only, you can only go so far with very little money, if that makes sense, right? I can't do an fMRI study without, you know, substantial funding, half a million, two, $3 million, right? So that's the reality of, of why I think where we are where we are. So. Sorry. That makes sense. And I yeah. was going to say, uh, there's also like one factor you mentioned is related mm -hmm. to this morality. And uh, I guess it's, it is also like a kind of evolution because uh, alcohol was also seen as a moral weakness exactly. before. So something must have happened uh, socially that made it, uh, that made the process of recovery become uh, acceptable. And even and even with these, I think that it, it, this varies greatly between cultures. But mm -hmm. this idea, like I know that in the U.S., there's this puritanical kind of um, baggage that is that is brought, and and so there's this paradox where you have a pornographic industry that makes a lot of money, mm -hmm. and at the same time you have these attitudes which are, in my view, a bit repressive. Mm -hmm. in terms of sexuality, nudity. Um, so it's, it's paradoxical. And 
I think that, uh, yeah, this, this is something that should be uh, like maybe an educational issue and also about, you know, accepting people as they are and in terms of their sexuality. But going back, like in terms, and, and I think, I'm sorry, and by the way, I also think that this could play a major factor in this uh, porn addiction and, you know, sexual uh, addiction or impulsivity model in that you have a culture that makes it taboo and therefore could make it, could give it an additional thrill in terms of seeking this out, if that makes sense. And yeah, and so right now you, you said you're working also in, uh, in terms of clinical uh, like realms, do you do, you do like, uh, do you do groups, do you do group therapy or more individual? And what so we have so right now so right now I supervise and working with PhD students in our training clinic and generally we don't uh, at this point get um, the, the our clinic has not received uh, referrals for sexual behavior but we haven't actually really been advertising that so I think our clinic will be working on kind of broadening its scope for around sexual behavior but yeah so generally when prior to I've only been here at UNLV for a little over a year so it's kind of a new transition for me so um, generally groups uh, individuals uh, group therapies uh, we've been testing out we have something under review we submitted for on um, looking at mindfulness based relapse prevention uh, for sexual behavior it looks really great um, so there's lots of approaches I think to help people so that's generally what we offer so um, psychotherapy is very effective um, but again lots of things work for people I think it just depends on what their issue is and what they need help with so um, but I think your point is everything you said earlier prior comment I agree with I think um, researchers in alcohol and public policy did a great job of doing lots of great research and then they got it out there they started showing people images of people's brains they said look this is what's happening for people and I think that's the same thing that I think could happen if we had really good funding and research and I think the, 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 the inclusion of compulsive sexual behavior disorder in ICD-11 is the first time you have a true disorder to which now will be you know required and could be built in 2022 in Europe and throughout the world and the US uses ICD codes for most big you know governmental organizations so that's the first time you can really increase access and give clinicians a billable code or disorder so that is a huge step in the right direction and I think that's going to have pretty large sweeping changes for mental health field I think throughout the world because you know in Europe for example if it's a mental health disorder, then it has to be treated, which is really nice. Um, and I think we'll have the same thing here as people negotiate these things, you know, for with insurance companies and access for mental health. So, so we're getting there. But I would say that your points are we still need a lot of funding, a lot of resources to do this kind of work. So, yeah. Yeah, and also on a, another um, question about uh, social-based uh, approaches is uh, last, last time I, I had Daryl Mead and his colleague uh, Mary Sharp on, mm -hmm. and they were talking about certain uh, interventions and uh, societal ideas like putting an age restriction on online porn. And I don't know if there's any, I mean, I think that, you see, I, I have this idea that I mentioned, I, I think that nudity, it shouldn't be taboo. Uh, the varieties of sexualities shouldn't be taboo. And I think that you will have less of these problems when you make them non-pathological or not connected with, you know, immorality. 
But uh, on the other hand, I, I can also see that if you are basing a system of excitement and pornography on this model, which makes the thrill, I don't know, like it could be sexual exploitation of women, for example, it's still not right. And, and that could impact uh, young people in a negative way. So I'm just wondering if you or uh, if you're aware of any of similar uh, approaches in the United States. Yeah, um, I think this is a big, a big topic, right? So, um, and again, we don't have a lot of data on what we do kind of know. And, you know, some of my early work, we, when I first started doing this work, I started asking young men, like, what age did you start seeing pornography regularly? And they're like 13, 14. You know, I grew up without uh, internet in the house. You know, I, I'm a different generation. Um, but my, I, have a, I have a young child, my a five and a half year old, and he only knows computers. So um, I think the, the concern, and I think that many countries, including us, is that many, many children have computer access and you have smartphones at 12, but there's limited restriction. And, I, and it's one of those things that I, I think there should be some discussion around how to restrict access because just, be, you know, because again, saying, oh, my, when I see talk to parents, my 12 year old would never do that. And I'm thinking, yes, your 12 year old is definitely doing that. So, and we don't know, we, we don't, we, I will not sit there and say what we know. We don't know what the consequences, good or bad, or any of this stuff for adolescents. But, but at the same time, I think, I know England tried to propose, I don't think it was held up where I thought it was a great idea where they would tell providers that the internet providers would block um, pornography for each home. But if the person, who lives in the home called in and says, I don't want it blocked, I want unrestricted internet, then they would have it. So in a sense, you just kind of restrict everyone, but anyone could call in, an adult who owns the, the piece of the internet bill, could unrestrict their line. So in a sense, they could say, no, I don't want any restriction. And by doing that alone, I think in some ways that actually, that, that I thought was a reasonably good idea. I don't think it went into effect. And I understand there's many people who don't want restrictions. I can understand that, I think. But I think at the same time, there needs to be a reality of that young people today, the age for earlier and regular viewing of pornography is going down every year. Um, and we know body images, body image issues in males, body images in women and young girls is also going, is continuing rising. And there's issues that might be related to some of this early exposure. So again, I don't know. These are questions or speculations. But at the same time, we're seeing a lot of mental health issues also. So I think it's something to think about. I think this is where funding and research and really bright people need to get together and kind of come up with some ideas uh, for, for, for this issue. Because I, I think it is, in, you know, my family, I have lots of nieces and nephews. And my friends said, what should I do? I said, if they have a phone, you should be monitoring their cell phone. You can't expect a 12, 13, 14-year-old to, to have unlimited, to be very curious and have unlimited access to pornography. The pornography of my time, you know, uh, Playboy, getting access to Playboy at 12 or 13, is a very different experience than seeing most of the pornography today, which we would what we would classify as called hardcore, but very explicit, and some of which is very violent and degrading to women and to the people. And so I think these are things that are worth having a conversation with. And I think thinking about respecting Americans' rights to, to have rights, and here in America, we're big on that, which I understand, and at the same time, have reasonable conversations around um, these issues. We know that children who smoke at younger ages, 12, 13, are more likely to be as adult smokers. The same for gambling, the same for alcohol and drugs. So all addictive behaviors follows that model very, very clearly. 
So at the same time, so we don't know whether these issues are um, addictive or not, but if, if we know that they're mapping on for pretty much all the other behaviors, I think then we should we should have some caution around how do we help parents and you know caregivers think about these conversations for these young kids, right? So that makes sense. Yeah, definitely, and and I would yeah. say that uh, this is a topic of great interest. Just, I mean, just the, the cell, you know, the, the smartphones in general. Yeah. Uh, I'm currently doing um, research where we validated the smartphone addictions. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, and we're looking at excessive internet use and things of yeah. this sort, and, and in young people, in the younger generation. So eight yeah. year olds, eight yeah. Yeah. Uh, to 15 year olds, and uh, I mean, from the data we have from the EU, uh, the average, I believe, the average uh, age for first uh, online porn viewing was uh, nine or ten. So it's pretty shocking. Yeah. And um, I guess yeah. that parents, I mean, it, it comes down to parents being aware of this thing. I mean, um, I, I think that this uh, this is kind of in the same ecosystem and in the same um, I don't want to be all only negative about it, but mm -hmm. I think that there's so many risks with uh, social media and video games yeah. and this type of uh, exposure to pornography at a young age. And for me, uh, like it's 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 really tearing society apart, especially social media. But I don't want to derail into that. I mm -hmm. think that people are are getting shorter attention spans and. Uh, you know, feeding echo chambers, and it's it's not a healthy place to be personally, and then in the uh, in the great in the social sense. But getting um, you know getting back to to some of this, and what what you you also work with. So you you're not primarily focused just on people with pornography addictions. You work as a clinical psychologist. Mm -hmm. You work with other issues as well and yeah exactly yeah yeah so i do normally do work in addiction i've always done work in addiction so we have projects going here with my lab which i my lab's called the behavioral addictions lab and we're doing projects looking at gambling mental health issues um i i worked in the va for for almost six years and i still do a lot of research and work on u.s vet, military veterans and some of the issues they're having which include sexual behavior gambling ptsd so what what you have to know is that all of these things all these co-occur with generally other mental health issues so if someone says i'm having issues with pornography they're likely to also have issues probably with depression and other issues. So, so from a treatment perspective, we have to be addressing all of these issues together, not isolated. So, so yeah, so, so the lab here is really doing a lot of work on gambling. So we're doing some research in gambling, trying to understand, you know, what are screening tools that we can effectively identify people with problem gambling for inner, inner early intervention, because, you know, if we can catch someone early, you can not, you, they don't have to destroy 20 years of their life, right, from gambling addiction. So, so these are kind of the, the researches, the research that we do, but I'm very interested in like trauma and, and how trauma, early trauma in childhood is a significant risk factor, I think, for developing sexual behavior, issues with sexual behavior. We're kind of starting to see evidence of that, and particularly for males. So, um, so there might be more externalizing risk behaviors, I think, for males who've been sexually traumatized as children or young adults. So, so that's some of the work that here we're doing. I think, um, like I said, I love this field because it, 
um, sexual behavior kind of overlaps so often with addictions and alcohol and drugs and trauma. It's just at all it's related. It's not isolated, you know, which is why I'm a clinical psychologist, which is why I like it. So, yeah, I think that's a that's a great point. Like with trauma, I mean, this is a very old notion. It comes, it goes all the way back to Freud talking about even sexual abuse and then the developing neuroses. But I think that this is a, a big point, and this is maybe a, a research idea that I'm throwing out there. But the uh, the idea of looking at how much. Uh, how much of a taboo things like nudity and kids uh, being able to explore their early sexuality. And I know this is a huge taboo topic, but it's, it's just a reality. So a seven or eight year old exploring and, you know, like being curious about their mates and things like that. And, you know, whether, and, and this is kind of um, something that uh, people like Wilhelm Reich wrote, wrote about, uh, already in the 1940s. Uh, well, if you if you basically um, give a little trauma where you, you you tell the kid or you you scold the kid saying this is bad, this is you know that even though this is your body, you should be ashamed of it. I think that develops some kind of pathological predisposition to later either you know be inhibit over inhibited or maybe go all the way in and, and, and rebel and do like a, uh, like a reaction to it. So I don't know. That's just, a, that's just an idea that, that, that I would be curious to see. Yeah. I, I think we just have to, I think that we need more work. I mean, I think unfortunately um, we have significant issues with sexual trauma, you know, here and for childhood sexual trauma in the U S and many survivors. Um, so, and the question is, is how do they, you know, cope with that? And do they develop some of these coping behaviors by becoming avoidant of sexual behavior as adults or then over in a sense of externalizing and engaging in high risk behavior. So I think that's a reasonable research. I mean, just like they can also survivors of sexual trauma can go on to develop substance use issues and, and, and other key behaviors and self-harm and, issues with suicidal ideation so so yeah i think it's these are all interesting questions i think this is kind of where we just don't have great data and i think this is where i think the discussion is going for to where we can really say what's going on here and, and again the internet is with us we're always going to be doing technology you know people pretty soon i guess 19 year olds will have smartphones which i thought it was like 14 they were 14 you know a couple years ago now it gets younger and younger so I think technology is not going to go away, but how do we make sure that technology stays healthy? I think is is the question, right? So, yeah. um, and, and how technology being introduced at a younger and younger ages, could what problems could that pose? In this case, for for people who have unlimited access to pornography or sexual behavior, and I always tell parents and clients, you know, it's important that you want to teach your children your values, and you know, if you're if you're letting the the cigarette commercials or the e-cigarette company tell you tell your children about smoking or vaping i think that's very dangerous versus you having a conversation around healthy behaviors and, and healthy identity and, and you know so I, I think it's really around parents i think talking about these issues early rather than allowing um, women to form ideas about themselves that's being formed on a, by pornography or some other media social media so i think you know, I think we're seeing more, I and mean, this is why we're, I continue to see, you know, rising mental health issues, I think, in teens, and we're seeing a lot of body image mm -hmm. issues in males, and when they look at it, these are, we don't know why, but it's correlating pretty 
significantly with high pornography use and so what are the what are the messages that people are seeing and internalizing you know i think is a reasonable thing for us to start thinking about you know yeah definitely and i would I, that's one of the things that i'm most interested and in, worried about is this uh, also like how how the brains of these young people are being formed the cognition uh, of how you talk to others how you uh, you know, how you relate to yourself, even what's the ideal body image. But this has been going on. But, and it's interesting you, men, you mentioned men, uh, males, because before it was more about women and, you know, the ideal body image through marketing. And now this is maybe, you know, indirect, indirect and not uh, as expected. Now, I know we don't have so much time, so I would just like to um, ask you about uh, recommendations treat what, what you've seen in terms of treatment, like the best outcomes for addictions. Cause I know I also, I, I don't want to derail, but I like sometimes mm -hmm. go off any other uh, thoughts, but I had an interview with a researcher who's in the UK, who's doing research also on psychedelic yeah. drugs. And, okay. and then how yeah. So, yeah. So what we know is we generally uh, use the addictive, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy. We've done, we, we use that quite a bit with clients who are coming in with these issues. And then again, more recently, we're doing the more mindfulness space. So how do you teach someone to slow down, kind of objectively observe and, and kind of understand their experiences? So um, there's also been really some nice support of what we call acceptance commitment therapy, which is another approach. There's been some really nice published studies out of a group from Utah um, that are nice. So I think psychotherapy can be very effective. Group Groups can also be helpful for people. I think it depends on what their issue is, right? So, um, and medication has also been helpful for some individuals who have high craving. We've, we've published and shown some support for naltrexone, which is a, a specific medication traditionally used for craving for alcohol and substances. Um, so I think it's very effective. And generally we use more of an addiction approach to that and teaching people skills around how to manage coping or craving or urges and changing their environment, but also changing their relationship with pornography. So when someone says, I have issues with pornography, I would say, well, what's it doing for you? And why do you use it? If you, if you don't understand the function, what's, why they're doing it, then you're not going to change the behavior. You're not going to help them understand that relationship. So part of therapy, I think, is understanding what, what am I getting out of this? And hey, this doesn't seem to be making me feel better, or this is kind of continually keeping me in a, in a negative place. Well, you have to change that relationship and maybe make some changes in your life and engage in different behaviors, maybe, you know, just change some of your habits. And so, um, but I would say treatment's very effective. We've had great outcomes. It's different for lots of people. I still don't think we have lots of what we call randomized clinical trials, these fancy things that we know to say this is very effective. But I would say the addiction framework of cognitive behavioral therapy is very useful. Uh, and I would encourage people to do that. There's also self-help books that are useful. Um, there's lots of lots of great things. I, remember, most people who have issues may not need psychotherapy. What they might need to do is really stop, slow down, do some self-reflection. There may be some activities for them that could be really helpful. You know, so um, part of it is people never stop to say, "I didn't realize. I don't know why I do it. You know, I just do it." And it's like, right? It's an automatic behavior. So, so you have to slow that down, and that's kind of what we teach. So. So for people, I would say the, the takeaway from that is to mm -hmm. become a little bit more aware of what's going mm -hmm. on. Exactly. Yeah. Your, you know, yeah. And then also, you know, you can seek help. I mean, there's lots of, um, there, there, there are many phenomenal programs out there and, and organizations uh, that have 
you know providers you can find therapists in your community in the U.S. and throughout Europe. And um, I think I think, but like you said, I think slowing down and, and asking yourself what's going on, and then trying to make some changes in your life. You know, I always tell people I don't ask. I'm never going to ask you to give up something if you don't replace it with something else. If I say just stop doing this, you say, well, why? No way. But if I say, well, give this up and do this instead so you feel more meaningful and more happy and more engaged and satisfied, we'll say, oh, that makes more sense. So you have to be willing to understand what you're doing and then be willing to maybe replace it or change it for something that's more meaningful, right? More clear. Yeah, that's it. What psychotherapy would say, right? Psychotherapy is that process of saying, wow, I didn't realize I've been doing this because I really, you know, I, I can't tolerate boredom or I, I feel that I'm not an attractive person or I, I, you know what I mean? Like it, you have to understand that insight. Yeah, definitely. And that's, uh, I, I mean, I'm a big proponent of therapy and counseling mm-hmm. in general. Yeah, so, it's great stuff. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, and definitely, and that's the one of the other takeaways that definitely there, the people who are doing this and watching mm-hmm. people or doing whatever other thing, something good is coming from it or they will not be doing yeah. it in the first place, mm-hmm. but right. maybe replacing with something that gives more meaning Mm-hmm. and puts them in a in the ideal and more of their ideal self mm-hmm. after yeah. connecting to that okay yeah so uh shane i know you yep. have to go and and uh yeah. we i think <laughs> we did it I, it was nice even though we did it short and sweet i great really enjoyed this interview uh, okay got a lot in so okay. uh, thank you very much and i thank hope you you again in yes sounds good and if you have any questions or let me know and a lot of our our work is online so people should be able to get access to many of these publications and things so if they google stuff they should be able to find lots of the materials and papers a lot of the stuff is publicly available so so you would recommend them looking you up on Google or research? It could. So it depends on, uh, yeah, I think, I think both those, we have a lot of things that we try to provide, you know, like we recently developed a, a new scale called the brief pornography screen, which is publicly available and we've tested it in several countries and different languages and all these things. So all of these are publicly available. So I'd encourage people to look those up and to read from those. And some of those I think should be really helpful I would hope, for folks. So, yeah. Great. So thank you very much. Thanks. Pleasure to have you on. Sounds good. Okay. See ya. Ciao. See ya. Bye.